Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Now, if you're listening to this on the day it's released, then not only is today Memorial Day here in the United States, where we honor the military personnel who lost their lives in service to the country, but we are just days away from the anniversary of the Battle of Midway. That battle took place between June 4th and June 7th in 1942 and marked a turning point in the Pacific War during World War II. That's why on today's episode, we're going to learn about the movie adaptation simply called Midway. Now, there are multiple movies that cover the Battle of Midway during World War II. Of course, there's the classic 1976 film starring Charlton Heston and Henry Fonda. But last year, a new movie depicting the events at Midway was released. So today, we'll be talking about the 2019 movie directed by Roland Emmerich that stars Woody Harrelson, Dennis Quaid, and Nick Jonas, just to name a few. To help us separate fact from fiction in the movie, there is perhaps no one better to do that than my guest today, Craig Simons. Craig is the Ernest J. King Professor of Maritime History at the Naval War College, as well as Professor Emeritus of History at the U.S. Naval Academy. He also has a great book called The Battle of Midway that dives into the true history behind the battle. Before we chat with Craig, though, let's set up our game. Now, if you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Now, you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. The U.S. was outnumbered with only 21 ships against Japan's 162 ships at the Battle of Midway. Number two, Japan's surprise attack on Pearl Harbor was driven by their need for oil. Number three, the Battle of the Coral Sea was the first time in naval history where opposing ships never visually sighted each other. Got them? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to connect with Craig to chat about the historical accuracy of Midway. The movie opens with some events leading up to the Americans' involvement in World War II, starting with a meeting between Edwin Layton and Isoroku Yamamoto in December of 1937. And during this meeting, Yamamoto tells Layton that Japan is both emboldened by their invasion of China and also eager to become a world power. They get 80% of their oil from the United States. So he tells Leighton that if that supply were threatened, they'd be forced to take drastic measures. Soon after this, the movie fast forward to the attack on Pearl Harbor. So as I was watching this, it gave me the idea that Japan's oil supply did end up being threatened after all. And that tension eventually led to the attack on Pearl Harbor. Was that one of the reasons behind the surprise attack on Pearl? It's pretty much the reason. The thing to keep in mind here is that for the Japanese, the war in China was existential. They had gotten involved in Manchuria in 1931, invaded China proper in 1937, and found that they had bitten off maybe a bit more than they could comfortably chew. 
the war extended into this morass uh, uh, of combat that lasted for a decade, and they were just pretty much in over their heads. They would win all the battles, but maintaining their control of China was so difficult, they recognized they needed to do something to break out of this terrible situation. And so the key for them was oil. Oil is, is the central cause of the Pacific War. They did get 80% of it from the United States and recognized that the United States was in a position to leverage that and make the Japanese behave the way Americans wanted them to behave. And the Japanese are very uncomfortable with that. They wanted an independent source of oil. The army in particular, and the army was a political power in Japan, the army saw that the Dutch East Indies, now mostly Indonesia, Java, Sumatra, Borneo, had one of the world's greatest known oil fields at the time. The Middle East was pretty much not yet developed or discovered. So they were eager to get access to that. And with the fall of Holland to the Germans in 1940, their colonies in South Asia were pretty much orphans. So their goal was to go down there to the Dutch East Indies and capture them for Japan, use the oil that was there, and carry it back to Japan so Japan would become what a later generation would call energy independent. The problem for them was that the American-owned Philippines sat directly astride that line of communication from the Dutch East Indies back to the homeland of Japan. So either way, either because the Americans would leverage their export of oil to Japan in exchange for what the Americans considered good behavior, or the American possession of the Philippines astride that line of communication to the Dutch East Indies meant that somehow to break out of this dependency, the Japanese would have to knock the Americans off their base so that they could become energy independent and finally win that war in China. Now, the problem with uh, the scene in the movie is that while Eddie Layton was, in fact, the uh, assistant naval attache in Tokyo in 1937, it's unlikely that they had that actual conversation because Layton, of course, would know that Japan got 80% of its oil from the United States. That conversation is presented to us so that we, the audience, know it and understand why the Japanese felt compelled into taking on this superpower with the attack on Pearl Harbor. It, it makes you assume that Layton doesn't really know a lot of that stuff, strategy going on there as well. Right. And he's an intelligence officer. So, of course, he already knows that. <laughs> well, I guess it makes sense for the filmmakers to explain that to us as the audience. <laughs> Yes, I think it does. It's probably necessary. I think one of the problems the filmmakers had, and they handled it pretty well, I think, is that it's such a sprawling, complex story to get into a two-hour time slot. They had to, to leave stuff out, and they had to give the audience background information in the context as it was developing. For the most part, they do a pretty good job of that. But of course, there are missing elements as well. That makes sense. And one thing that they show when we see the attack on Pearl is that the carriers are not at Pearl during that attack. It doesn't, but the movie doesn't really explain why they were ordered to stay out of Pearl. What were the American carriers doing during the attack? Okay, that's a great question. There would have been, should have been perhaps, four American carriers, large deck carriers in the Pacific Ocean during this time. One of them, the Yorktown, had been sent from Hawaii around to the Atlantic, where in 1940-41, the United States was engaged in, the, in a 
clandestine war with German U-boats, protecting convoys across the ocean, carrying lend-lease goods to Britain and so on. And Roosevelt pulled the Yorktown out of the Pacific to beef up the Atlantic Squadron. So that goes from four down to three. The Saratoga, another one of those four carriers, was in Bremerton Naval Shipyard uh, undergoing a, a scheduled routine refit. So that left two. Well, where were those two? On the 27th of November, in other words, just a couple of weeks before the Japanese attack, reading the Japanese diplomatic codes, and we can talk more about that later, reading the Japanese diplomatic codes indicated to decision makers in Washington that war with Japan was imminent. And a war warning was sent out by the chief of naval operations and the army chief of staff to Pacific Command saying war could begin at any moment, be prepared, be ready. And in order to be ready, Husband Kimmel, the American admiral in Pearl Harbor, decided he needed to beef up two of his outlying outposts, Midway, which was 1,100 miles to the north, and Wake Island, which was 1,200 miles to the west. And so with his two remaining carriers, he loaded them up with Marine fighters and sent them out to replenish the air squadrons at both Midway and Wake. And that's where they were on the 7th of December. So although Yamamoto's goal, his primary goal really, is to knock the American fleet back on its heels in such a way that it couldn't interfere with their conquest of the Dutch East Indies, he really wanted to get those carriers. But they were off on other business, delivering planes to Midway, delivering planes to Wake. And that's why on December 7th, there were no American carriers in Pearl Harbor. Now, there are some people who are inclined to be suspicious about such things who saw uh, a conspiracy theory here. Ah, you see, somebody knew the Japanese were going to attack, and we got the carriers out of the way on purpose. I've investigated that in great detail. There seems to be absolutely nothing to that. It was just a stroke of good fortune for the United States, or maybe good planning, that their carriers were off on other business on December 7, 1941. Yeah, I guess I could see that, but I could also see the other side of it. If, if they knew something was going on, why only take the carriers out? Why not avoid a, the catastrophe that did happen and send more ships out of Pearl if they knew it was going to be attacked? Okay, that's a good question. First, they did not know it was going to be attacked. What they knew was the Japanese were probably going to declare war. They were probably going to invade South Asia, Malaysia, Sumatra, Borneo, Java, maybe even the Philippines. But the idea of bringing a major strike force, six aircraft carriers, all the way across the Pacific Ocean, 2,500 miles, undetected, to attack the American fleet in Pearl Harbor was just absolutely impossible. Logistically, in terms of intelligence and recognition, it just was out of the question. It's not that we didn't expect a Japanese attack. We didn't expect a Japanese attack on Hawaii. The Hilo Daily Newspaper on the Big Island in Hawaii, a week before uh, the attack, had a banner headline in letters two inches high that said, Japan may attack this weekend. And of course they did. What nobody knew was where they would attack. According to the movie, after the attack on Pearl, there's a little bit of dialogue with Admiral Chester Nimitz, and he sets up the situation for how bad things are for the Americans in the Pacific in the wake of Pearl. 
he says the U.S. has three carriers, while the Japanese have 10. And the Japanese also have more battleships, cruisers, bombers, fighters. Their equipment is all newer than the Americans' equipment. Basically, the implication here is that the Imperial Japanese Navy has the American Navy heavily outnumbered. Can you give us some historical insight into how things looked for the Americans after Pearl Harbor? First of all, things were bad. There's no doubt about it. The American battle fleet, and really this is kind of a pivot point in the character of naval warfare, because up to 1940 or so, the battleship was the queen of naval warfare. The assumption was that lines of heavy battleships firing 15, 16-inch guns uh, would dominate any kind of naval combat in the future. The carriers were only beginning to emerge as the principal strike force of modern navies. So the destruction of the American battle fleet, even a temporary destruction, four ships sunk, four others badly damaged, it would take months for them to be repaired. The Japanese goal was to secure for themselves control of the Western Pacific Ocean for at least a six-month period, long enough for them to acquire that resource base in the South Pacific, the Dutch East Indies in particular, and then to fortify and solidify it and defy the United States to come and take it back. Eventually, their assumption was the Americans would give up on this, the Japanese would get to keep their new conquests, they'd become energy independent, and all would be well. It was a foolish assumption, of course, uh, but we can revisit that question later. But from Nimitz's point of view, actually, it wasn't quite as bad as it looked because they had not attacked the carriers. They had not hit the submarine pens in uh, Pearl Harbor or the oil tanks that kept both the carriers and the submarines operational. So if the battleship force was taken out, that turned out to be not as disastrous as it looked in the horrible photographs that came out of Pearl Harbor, because the carriers and the task force surrounding the carriers survived, and the submarines survived, and they had enough fuel to operate. But that is included in the movie, I think, to, to show something that is absolutely true, and that is the American psychology that, my gosh, I can't believe these people, whom we have underestimated for many years, were able to carry this off. That was a remarkable accomplishment, to steam that strike force all the way across the Pacific, to wipe out the American battle line, my Lord, what are we confronting here? There was, I think, a psychological blow to the United States at the time. Even though underlying it, American capabilities had been weakened less than it looked at first. That makes sense that, like you were saying earlier, it was not expected. And so just that aspect of it by itself is going to have an effect on morale across the board. Absolutely. And not only was it not expected, the ability of the Japanese to carry it off, I think, surprised a lot of Americans. A lot of Americans flipped immediately from, well, these are a, a race of small butt-toothed people with, who are nearsighted, who really can't do much, to, oh my God, they're supermen who can do anything. So that psychological trigger, I think, was critical, too. Yeah. Uh, going back to the movie, there's, there's a, well, I'll call this a, a Hollywood moment. I call it that when it just shows something that seems too crazy to be true. Of course, that doesn't necessarily mean it's not true, but that's what I ask you about. In this one, it's the attack on the Marshall Islands. And according to the movie, Dick Best and his dive bombers take out most of the Japanese bombers on the island, but 
not all of them, we see some Japanese bombers dropping their bombs on the American carrier Enterprise, but nothing hits. But one of the bombers is hit by an American anti-aircraft, and the bomber turns itself around to crash into the Enterprise. And this is when the a character named uh, Bruno Guido hops into one of the airplane's machine guns on the deck of the Enterprise and shoots the bomber just enough to make a change trajectory and, and graze the Enterprise. Now, as soon as I saw that, I thought, surely that was made up for the movie. Or maybe I'm wrong. Did something like that really happen? Not only did something like that happen, it happened almost exactly the way it was portrayed. That was an, a very wonderful portrayal of an event that took place pretty much exactly is shown. And I have to really credit the producers of the movies with the CGI, the, the electronic uh, computer generated imagery that was able to produce that scene. It was absolutely uh, perfectly done, just as you saw it. Wow. <laughs> Even the conversation that takes place afterward, where Halsey asks that the sailor come up to the flag bridge and he tells him, what's your rating? He says, uh, machine is second class. Well, now your machine is first class. That's almost word for word what was spoken on the flybridge that day. Wow. Well, earlier you talked about the effect that the attack on Pearl happened, and that leads into the next aspect because there's a bit of retaliation from the American side. The movie gives us a date of April 18th, 1942, and this is when we see a bunch of Army bombers on an aircraft carrier. Leading the mission of this is Lieutenant Colonel James Doolittle. And about 650 miles east of Japan, Admiral Halsey decides not to get any closer to Japan with the carriers. He doesn't want to risk losing them. So Doolittle and his men take off knowing that they won't have enough gas to make the return trip. Now, in his speech to the pilots before taking off in the movie, we see Doolittle mention that if they're successful, it will be the first time in Japan's history that they've been hit on their home territory. And... According to the movie, they are successful. They take off in a storm. There's wind and rain whipping around. But then we see Doolittle's bombers dropping bombs over Tokyo. And the movie then follows after the raid to where they're forced to parachute from their planes. They run out of gas. They don't really know where. They, According to the dialogue in the movie, they don't know what's below them. They just know the planes have run out of gas and they have to jump out. So they jump out. And then later on, we find out they're... Uh, must have been over China because they're helped with some uh, Chinese men that we assume they jumped out over China somewhere. But how well did the movie do showing the Doolittle raid? Pretty good. Uh, a couple of things about your question there. Uh, first of all, the idea um, is never that the planes will come back to the carriers to land there. The problem that the uh, Americans had with this is that Army bombers could take off from a carrier. They actually had practiced that off Norfolk before they began this. So they knew bombers could take off into a nice wind. You know, carriers always turn into the wind to launch, so the relative wind across the deck is increased. That allows them to get up with a relatively short takeoff distance. But there's absolutely no way any of them could then land on a carrier. So the solution to this was that they would get to about 400, 450 miles from Japan, fly over Japan, drop bombs, not just on Tokyo, but on a half dozen Japanese cities, and then continue on, fly over the Sea of Japan and land on friendly airfields in China. This had all been set up beforehand. But the difficulty was that the Japanese had erected a picket line 
of radio-equipped fishing trawlers, essentially, uh, some 600 miles off the coast. And those trawlers recognized the carrier-capable airplane flying over them, reported the presence of American carrier force back so that Halsey's decision was not, well, this is as far as I want to go. Having been discovered, this had all been pre-planned beforehand. Having been discovered, they had two choices. They could turn around, call it off, or they had to launch immediately, knowing that it was unlikely they could get all the way to those airfields. But at least they could perhaps get over the part of China not yet occupied by the Japanese, bail out over that area, and maybe make it to some friendlies who would help them get back to the United States. So it raised the risk level dramatically on the flight. And Doolittle did give everybody a chance to back out if anybody doesn't want to go. Of course, everybody said, no, no, we want to go. So that's why they launched from further out than the original plan called for. So they knew they weren't going to be able to get back, but they never intended to get back. They also knew now that they weren't probably going to get to a friendly airfield, but perhaps they could get to China. Most of them did. Some of the planes crashed just getting to the China coast. The Japanese captured a couple of crews, executed some of the pilots held the others in prison until the end of the war, few of whom actually survived. One plane landed at Vladivostok in the Soviet Union. But remember, the Soviet Union is still neutral in this war. The Soviet Union stays neutral in the Pacific War right up until August of 1945. So the Russians kind of said, well, okay, you've landed here, but why don't you leave? And eventually they got out through Iran. But most of what is depicted in the film comes straight from Jimmy Doolittle's memoir, which is called I Could Never Be So Lucky Again, and tells the tale almost exactly the way Doolittle told it. He landed in a, in a field that had recently been fertilized and was all stinky, and the local farmers had stolen his discarded parachute because it was silk and they wanted to use it. They did finally run into a Chinese patrol who got them to safety and eventually back to the United States. So the movie handles that quite well and does it particularly from Doolittle's point of view. The point to make historically, I suppose, about that is that none of this, the Doolittle raid did really not have a significant strategic impact on the war. It was a morale-boosting stunt, and everybody knew it. But boy, did it boost morale. It did exactly what Roosevelt and Ernest King, the American chief of naval operation, hoped that it would do, and that is to raise American morale and made Americans feel like we struck back. Even though four bombs per airplane dropped randomly over a handful of cities did almost no strategically important damage to the Japanese, it embarrassed them. And it led Yamamoto in particular to believe he had let down the emperor because protecting the life of the emperor was the first job of every naval officer in the Imperial Japanese Navy, and they had failed to do that. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history, too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park and it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then 
because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Well, that leads to my next question, because in the movie, it suggests that because of the Doolittle raid, that led the Japanese to believe that they need to focus on taking out the American carriers, almost similar to what you were saying earlier, where the attack on Pearl made the Americans believe that they need to take Japan seriously as a threat. Now, the Doolittle raid almost flips that, at least according to the movie, in where the Japanese are, oh, we need to focus on taking out the American carriers now. Was that part of the raid true? Well, yes and no, but mostly no, I'm afraid. Yamamoto had already decided he needed to take out the American carriers. He was very disappointed to have missed them at Pearl Harbor. Uh, As successful as Pearl Harbor was, it it failed in that it did not get the American carriers. And he put together the plan to attack Midway, not so much because he wanted Midway, but because Midway would be the bait, it would be the trigger that would cause Americans to send their two carriers out so that they would become vulnerable to an attack and could be sunk in deep water where they could not be recovered. And getting rid of the American carriers was the primary motive of the entire Midway campaign. He had already sold that campaign to the Japanese Naval General Staff, so it had already been decided they were going to do this. What the Doolittle Raid did was convince the Army, which in Japanese politics is an entirely different entity from the Navy. They were almost They were on the same side, but barely spoke with one another. But it did convince the army that they would participate, that they would allow some of their resources to be involved in this campaign. The uh, Midway campaign had already been written up, had already been approved, was already in process before the Doolittle Raid struck. It did convince the army to come on board. Okay, I think I remember some scenes where there's dialogue between Yamamoto and the army, and he's trying to convince them to focus on the carriers. But the impression I got was that was almost the entire military, like Yamamoto is trying to convince everybody in the Japanese military across the board that this is what we need to focus on, not necessarily just to get the army to help the Navy. Yeah, I think that's true. It's hard for Americans to understand, we, especially in the modern day when joint operations are so common and the Army, Navy, and Air Force officers all get along well, more or less get along together, except on football Saturdays. <laughs> but in Japan, uh, the Army and the Navy were, were very distinct entities and very much at loggerheads one another to the point where they would actually assassinate one another. It was a severe, a rivalry not a strong enough word for it. So Yamamoto's effort to convince the high command, the general staff, to go along with his plans was often an uphill battle for him. Wow, yeah. 
that is a very different mindset than I would have thought. The next date that we see in the movie is May 8th, 1942. And this is, it doesn't really show the battle, but we see the aftermath of the Battle of the Coral Sea. And we find out that the Americans have lost a carrier there. And there's some dialogue that implies that only leaves two carriers left, Enterprise and Hornet. Now, since the movie kind of glosses over this a little bit, can you give us a little more of an insight into the Battle of the Coral Sea and how it affected the overall war in the Pacific? Yeah, the Coral Sea is really a milestone in naval warfare. I mentioned earlier we were talking about the shift between battleship confrontation and carrier strikes. And and this is where it really comes to the fore. It's almost a pivot point here in the Coral Sea. This is the first naval battle in history where the opposing forces never visually sighted one another. All of the confrontations took place from carrier-launched airplanes attacking one another. Uh, And it's kind of a tactical draw. The Japanese uh, sunk our biggest aircraft carrier, the Lexington, and they sunk a fleet oiler, which in the logistical difficulties of operating in the great expanses of the Pacific is also a severe blow, and a destroyer. The Americans sunk a small Japanese carrier and did severe damage to one of the two large Japanese carriers, but also shot down more of the Japanese aircraft. So on balance, you could say it looks pretty even, but strategically, it's an American victory because the confrontation in the Coral Sea convinced the Japanese to turn around their invasion convoy, which was headed for Port Moresby on the south coast of New Guinea and surrender that initiative. This is the first time in the war that something they tried to do had to be recalled because of something the Americans did. So the Battle of the Coral Sea is an important moment. In hindsight, we now see it as a precursor to Midway, but at the moment, it's a pretty significant event in its own right. And you say there are only two carriers left, and that's kind of true. There are only two fully operational carriers left, Enterprise and Hornet, And those are the two carriers, after all, that conducted the Doolittle Raid. So not only are they the only two fully operational carriers left, they're coming back from that long voyage out to the, almost to the coast of Japan. So they're not immediately available. But there's an asterisk there with a footnote, which is that a third carrier, the Yorktown, which had been damaged in the Coral Sea, was still afloat. And of course, the big question is, could it be repaired in time? And could the Hornet and Enterprise get back in time for the United States to have three carriers available to confront the attack on Midway? Well, that leads directly into the actual battle at Midway now. After the the Coral Sea... In the movie, we see that the Americans believe the Japanese are planning something big, and the code name is AF. The problem seems to be that they don't know exactly where AF is supposed to be. And so we see Leighton and a Navy codebreaker find out a way to learn that destination. The way that they do this, at least according to the movie, and this is something that was actually not to get too far away from the 2019 movie, but they mimic this similarly in the 1976 movie Midway as well, where they talk about AF has lost their fresh water supply. That's something that they intercept in a Japanese message. And then in this movie, Leighton says something to the effect of, well, that's interesting because Midway accidentally sent out an unencrypted message that their water plant was broken. Of course, 
It's not broken, but that's how the Americans are able to determine that codename AF from the Japanese communications was actually Midway. Is that really how they found out that Midway was the target? Uh, Again, I have to say yes and no. Let me back this up a little bit by saying code breaking is absolutely central to the Battle of Midway. It's central to the Battle of the Coral Sea as well, by the way. The American carriers are in the Coral Sea because the code breakers had determined that the Japanese were making an attempt on Fort Moresby. And similarly, the code breakers informed Nimitz that the Japanese intended to attack Midway. The code breakers themselves, and particularly Joe Rochefort, who led that group of always depicted as being very eccentric mathematicians and some band members from the old Battleship California and others who were trying their best to break down these very difficult to crack Jap operational codes. Now, this is very different from the diplomatic code, which had been being read for some time. The operational code is much trickier and much more complicated. And we never were reading all of it, but we were getting just bits of it, just enough to get pretty good hints. Rochefort, for his part, knew darn well what AF was. He knew it was Midway. He told Nimitz and he told Layton, we're sure it's AF. The problem is the national intelligence officers in Washington, D.C., uh, were not so sure. They knew the Japanese were building up their forces. They weren't sure what the next attack would be. Maybe they'd try for Port Moresby again or American Samoa, or New Caledonia, or maybe they'd even go after the Panama Canal or the West Coast of the United States. We just didn't know. So this gambit, uh, which was suggested actually by a guy named Jasper Holmes, who worked down in the code-breaking area they called the Dungeon, suggested it to Rochefort. Why don't we use our submarine cable? We actually have a direct connection with Midway by submarine cable. Tell them to send us a message by radio in the clear that their saltwater evaporators have broken down. And then we'll wait. And if the Japanese intercept that and they report that AF is short of water, that will show those doubters in Washington that we know what we're talking about. And that's how it came about. Sure enough, Japanese intercepted it, reported that AF was short of fresh water. And Washington said, okay, yeah, we agree. It's Midway, no doubt about it now. But Rochefort kind of knew that from the beginning. So it wasn't to find out. It was to prove that Midway was the target. One more quick story about this. It's kind of fun that people tend to overlook. The Japanese on the supply ships that they were sending on this Midway invasion strike, if you look now, once the war is over, at the uh, cargo manifests, one of the things they carried with them in their cargo ships was a new saltwater evaporator to replace the broken one on Midway. (laughs) I mean, I guess it makes me wonder how many times somebody would know something, but they still had to prove it in order to find out. I wonder how how much of that uncertainty came from the attack on Pearl. Throw into question a lot of, or I would assume, make a lot of the Americans doubt their strategies up until that point. Oh, sure. Absolutely. You can see Washington say, well, how do you know? Well, the answer is because we work with this 20 hours a day. We're working ourselves blind and and reading all these codes, and we can tell. But that's not going to satisfy somebody. So, well, how come you couldn't tell last December? Well, you mentioned earlier Yorktown, and according to the movie, after the Coral Sea, of course, there were two carriers left. But then we also do see Yorktown getting repaired. The date, according to the movie, is May 29th, 1942. 
And at that time, we see Nimitz, and he goes to where Yorktown is being repaired, and there's still a huge hole in the deck. He says, I don't care how it happens, but we need her to sail in 72 hours. Then later on, we see the sailors and pilots on Enterprise cheer as they see Yorktown arrive. They call it a miracle that she got out of dry dock in time for the battle. Can you give us an overview of how Yorktown was damaged at Pearl and how she was repaired in time for the battle at Midway, like the movie shows? Okay, she wasn't damaged at Pearl. This is damage, of course, from the battle in the Coral Sea. And the Japanese did, in fact, put a bomb right through the flight deck on the Yorktown, but they also landed several bombs close alongside, and the underwater concussion of those bombs did severe damage to her hull. She had bent hull plates, big crack openings in the hull, so they had to close down the watertight compartments to keep it from flooding. She was leaking oil all the way back from Pearl, from the Coral Sea to Hawaii. She's leaking oil as she goes. She limps into port and put in a dry dock. Now, what they show in the film is this hole in the deck. That is not true, but I know why they did it. They did it to show how serious the damage was to the Yorktown. But the real damage, the damage that mattered was the damage underwater. That's why she had to go into the dry dock. They drained out the water. And Nimitz actually went down to dry dock number one, pulled on some big hip boots like he's going fly fishing, climbed down into the dry dock and sloshed around down there looking at the hole. And that's where he said, we have to have it back in 72 hours. That's a hard thing to film. The crew on the Yorktown had actually patched the hole in the deck before they got back to Pearl Harbor. So at that time, there is no hole in the deck. But the damage was all underwater. And the question was, could they repair that damage enough so that she could become fully operational in time to get back out to sea? And he looked it over and decided, yes, we can do it. He actually sent a message to Ernie King back in Washington that he thought the damage could be repaired in 48 to 60 hours. And it pretty much was. But he did that by giving liberty to the crew, everybody get off the ship. The entire repair force climbed all over that ship, worked 24 hours around the clock for two and a half days and got it repaired. They reflooded the dry dock, got her back out, and off she went to confront the Japanese at Midway. It's a remarkable story, and the dockyard workers are as much heroes in the story as anybody else. But literally speaking, it wasn't the hole in the deck, it was the damage to the hull below the water. Well, that's a good point that you make, that it's difficult to visualize that, the the damage underneath, as much as you just see a big hole, and as a moviegoer, you're going to realize, oh, this is not good. <laughs> <laughs> right. The movie suggests that Yorktown, once it meets up with the other carriers, so now there's three carriers, and then there's four Japanese carriers, but I don't remember seeing a lot of indication about how many battleships, cruisers, destroyers, basically who all was involved on each side. Can you give us an overview of the number of the ships that were involved in the Battle of Midway? Yeah, I can. And it's interesting because Americans are often eager to portray this confrontation as a David versus Goliath confrontation. The Japanese did have four carriers to our three. With those two carriers, excuse me, with those four carriers, two battleships, several heavy cruisers, and a, and a destroyer screen. So the Japanese actually had 21 ships in that immediate group, known as the Mobile Strike Force, or in Japanese, the Kido Butai. So there are 21 ships in the Kido Butai, but they are only part of a much larger effort by the Japanese, the invasion force. 
is steaming separately. There's a covering force. There's something called the main force, which is actually the principal battleship group trailing behind. There's another force headed up for Alaska to take two of the islands up there, Atu and Kiska. If you add together all of the ships the Japanese had at sea in the first week of June 1942, it actually totals up to 159. So a lot of times Americans who are eager to demonstrate just how much of a David versus Goliath confrontation it was will use that larger number. The Japanese had 159 ships. We had only 24. Technically true. But at the point of contact, at the battle between carrier forces on each side, the Japanese had 21. The United States had 24. Because we didn't have all those other fleets out operationally doing other things. So at the point of contact, the odds were not quite as David versus Goliath as it seems. And of course, if you include the island of Midway and its airfield, you could argue that the Americans had a fourth landing platform. It couldn't steam around, but also couldn't be sunk. So if you count Midway and the three carriers, that's four for the Americans, four for the Japanese it's pretty much a toss-up. I've heard that bigger number before, and so I always assumed, yeah, that the Americans were just vastly outnumbered. They were overall, but they weren't where it counted. According to the movie, we see the attack on Midway begins at dawn on June 4th, 1942, and it starts with Japanese planes strafing and bombing the island. We see a report to Nimitz from a scout plane that the Japanese fleet was sighted 320 degrees, 180 miles northwest of Midway. And then he tells Leighton, this is a little kind of a little bit of humor in there, that his intelligence was off by five minutes, five miles, and five degrees. Leighton jokes that he'll try to do better next time. But they're ready for the counterattack because of that intelligence where they're able to determine where the Japanese are. How well do you think the movie did showing the Americans being able to predict where the Japanese were going to be located. Remarkably well. That's mostly true. Rochefort briefed Nimitz and his staff at a staff meeting on May 27th. So this is just a, a week, almost literally exactly a week before the attack. And he told them they will come with four carriers. They will come from this direction. He even named the four carriers, the Kaga, Akagi, Soryu, and Hiryu. They will be about here when they launch their planes. It was very specific and so specific that a number of members of Nimitz's staff kind of wrinkled their brows and said, how, how can you be so specific? And of course, uh, Rochefort and his team had spent the previous several days breaking down these little, this whole series of, of messages that the Japanese had incautiously committed to the airwaves. Uh, and they pieced those pieces of information together like a giant puzzle and had just enough pieces to come up with this answer. But I think it is true that because of that, Rochefort was able to tell, well, first Leighton, but in this particular case, Nimitz personally, exactly where they'd be, when they'd be, what they'd launch, and when it would happen. Wow. And I'm sure the ability for him to prove AF and prove that, okay, I know what I'm talking about, <laughs> helped in order to believe him this time around. It did. And, you know, one of the reasons that became a little bit controversial is that technically, if you look at the chain of command, Rochefort, as an intelligence officer, reported to uh, Washington, D.C. His boss was John Redmond in Washington, not Layton. 
But he and Leighton knew each other. They had been in Japan together. That early scene where we see Leighton talking to Yamamoto, it, just several years before that, Leighton and Rochefort had been the only two Americans who were over there on uh, attaché purposes to learn Japanese, to study Japanese culture. So they became friends then and remained friends so that they had telephone conversations almost every day so that when Rochefort talked directly to Leighton, who then, of course, talked directly to Nimitz, he was short-circuiting the chain of command. Technically, he was supposed to report to Washington. Washington would collate his input with that from other intelligence gatherers, and then they would tell Leighton what they thought the intelligence was saying. But Nimitz learned to trust Leighton, and Leighton trusted Rochefort, and Washington didn't really like that relationship. One thing that we see in the movie I'm curious about is it goes out of the way to show John Ford, legendary director, on Midway filming the footage as the attack begins. Was he actually there at the time of the attack? Yeah, he was, and that's why it's included. And, of course, John Ford is a bigger-than-life character, and I think the depiction of him saying, keep shooting, keep shooting, you feel for the poor cameraman who's supposed to stand out there and, and uh, take these films, but that that's who John Ford was, and that's pretty much the way that happened. The footage that exists, some of it in color, actually shows mostly the buildings burning and billows of black smoke going up into the air immediately after the Japanese attack. There isn't a lot of footage of the actual attack, but yes, John Ford was there and that footage survives. I think you can still see it on YouTube. Wow. I'll have to look for that. And it's interesting that we knew that the attack was going to be there, but he was still there. I'm assuming he had to have flown there specifically to get some of that footage. Yeah, I guess so. And you wonder about that because this is all supposed to be a big secret. The idea that the Americans had broken enough of the Japanese code to tip them off that this was coming was one of the most closely held secrets along with the Manhattan Project of the entire war. So why would you tell John Ford, you know, that this was going to happen? But he clearly, somebody suggested to him, well, you might get some good footage out there. And who did that and whether there were consequences for saying so, I do not know. <laughs> Going back to the movie, the way it shows the Americans attacking the Japanese fleet starts with squadrons of torpedo planes. There's a submarine that we see involved, the Nautilus, but nothing really seems to hit. The, there's planes that are shot down. The Japanese shoot down a lot of the American planes. The Nautilus is pinned down by a destroyer. Then once the Japanese destroyer is sending depth charges on the Nautilus, once it's done, it races back to the rest of the fleet. And that's how the American dive bombers find the location of the Japanese fleet. But even with the dive bombers, initially, at least according to the movie, nothing really seems to hit. Although we see some dialogue from the Japanese officers that even though they're not taking any hits, because they're getting these constant attacks. They're not able to get their own bombers off the decks because of these attacks. And finally, we do see some hits. The Americans are able to get on the Soryu. I believe that's the first one that was set ablaze by bombs, according to the movie. Can you give us an overview of how the battle progressed compared to what we see in the movie? I can. Remember that the first strikes on the Japanese Kitabutai, the carrier force, come from the island of Midway. Those go early because it doesn't matter if the Japanese find out that there are airplanes on Midway. They know where Midway is. They don't yet know that the American carriers are out there north of them. That's going to be a surprise, and we hold back that surprise until the critical moment. So the early strikes all come from the island Midway, and these this is an eclectic group of Army 
Army bombers, Marine Corps bombers, a, a wayward Navy squadron that didn't get hooked up with its own carrier. And, and because they're different types and they fly at different speeds and different altitudes, the early attacks are pretty much wasted. It's really a sad thing. The pilots and the and the gunners are determined and they press the attack, but uh, they, they're just savaged by the Japanese, uh, not just the anti-air fire, but particularly by the Japanese Zeros flying CAP, Combat Air Patrol, over the carriers. And some 80 or so airplanes, Nimitz had sent everything he could out to Midway to defend it, but none of those strikes uh, managed to lay a glove on the Japanese. Uh, and the Japanese are feeling pretty smug about this. And then the next attack comes from the American torpedo bombers. And there's a long story, which we can get into if you want, about why the torpedo bombers, which are the slowest of all the American strike planes, are the ones that get there first. But they get there first without fighter support and without coordination from the bombers. And they are all but wiped out. In fact, we see that Torpedo Squadron 8 from the Hornet is literally wiped out. All 15 planes are shot down. All the pilots and rear seat gunners are killed, save one man, Ensign George Gay, subsequently famous on the cover of Life magazine. So all the torpedo bombers are shot down. And so up to now, the Japanese had really had it all their way. They've had no damage. They shot down everything the Americans have thrown at them, near, nearly a hundred American airplanes. And they're almost ready to launch their own attack when here come the dive bombers overhead. And this is one reason why the Battle of Midway is such an amazing sequence of events. If someone wrote this in a novel, you'd say, oh, well, that's ridiculous. That could never happen. The coincidences are too great. Uh, but it's true. At 10.25 in the morning, those dive bombers appear overhead. Now, you suggested in your question that they, too, seem to miss it first. But in fact... Once the dive bombers arrive, once uh, Wade McCluskey's two squadrons, the bomber squadron and the fighter squadron from Enterprise, arrive over the Kido Butai, not only does the Battle of Midway flip, the Pacific War flips. Between 1025 and 1030 on the morning of June 4th, the course of the war is changed dramatically in a five-minute moment. That happens so seldom in any human activity, and particularly in warfare, that it seems unlikely. But in fact, it's true. Uh, and one of the reasons it's possible is that the Japanese fighter planes had all flown down to a relatively low level in order to shoot down those torpedo bombers so that when the dive bombers arrive up at 20,000 feet, the skies are clear. No one interferes with them. They get to line up on the carriers and make a good ready, as they used to say, and then tip over and conduct those screaming dive bombing attacks, which are pretty much the way they're portrayed in the movie, down about 70 degrees, almost straight down. The wind's so strong, the G's force so great that pilots can barely pull out at the end of it. And then they drop their gravity-guided bombs, and almost immediately the Kaga and the Akagi are blanketed with bombs from McCluskey's uh, squadrons, and uh, they're mortally wounded, both of them. Now, Best, who's one of the characters the producers and director decided to make a central storyline, is the one guy who recognizes that all of the American dive bombers were diving on the same carrier. And he and his two wingmen pull out of that and say, no, 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 we can't all dive on the same ship. And those three planes, and this is depicted quite well in the movie, focus on the Akagi, which is the Japanese flagship. And you wouldn't think ordinarily that three planes 
attacking the flagship of the Japanese fleet would make a difference. But as depicted in the movie, and it's very well done, the two wingmen land bombs close alongside. You see both of those. They land just off the starboard port beam. But Dick Best's bomb, and Dick Best is carrying a 1,000-pound bomb, lands square in the middle of the flight deck. It has a tiny little delay fuse on it. It goes down to the hangar deck where the Japanese are preparing all their strike planes, refueling them with ordnance piled up on both sides. That bomb goes off, cooks off all that ordnance, and with one bomb, the Akagi is doomed. And again, in a novel, you'd say... Not very likely, but in fact, that's exactly how it happened. Well, you mentioned that the Japanese fighters were flying low because of the torpedo bombers getting there first, but you also mentioned that the torpedo bombers getting there being one of the slower planes, that that was not necessarily expected. So I'm assuming that wasn't the strategy to divert the Japanese planes lower so that then the dive bombers will be free and clear to to bomb that. Was that pretty much just good fortune that that happened that way? Well, it wasn't good fortune for the pilots of the torpedo bombers. Well, that's true. But you're right. It was not planned. This was not a strategy, oh, we'll lure them away and then the dive bombers will come in. This is a set of circumstances that develops. At 7 o'clock, Admiral Spruance launches the planes from the two carriers for which he is responsible. That's the Hornet and the Yorktown. The Hornet's planes fly off in the wrong direction, and they're out of the battle. Notice they're not even in the movie. Forget them. They're, they're not involved. But the Enterprise planes fly down to where the coordinates are supposed to be, and there's nobody there. And as you suggested earlier, they see this one errant destroyer heading north. They think, aha, that must be where they are. They head north and they find them about 1025. But what had happened during the launch sequence is that it was taking so long that Spruance ordered the bombers, you go ahead and go. Don't wait for the torpedo bombers. It'll take too long. We'll lose the element of surprise. Go now. So McCluskey flies off with the bombers. And then once the torpedo planes get up in the air, they head off, but they head in a slightly different direction. And of course, as we know, McCluskey had to look around before he found the Kido Butai, and the torpedo bombers found him right away. So that's how they arrived first, not because it was planned, but because that's the way it worked out. Now, it sounds like pretty. the movie did a pretty good job of explaining, or at least showing that aspect of it, their arrivals at different times. Yes, it did. I will say this, that It's a much more complicated story, explaining why the Yorktown planes went in the wrong direction and why the torpedo planes from the Hornet, uh, not the Yorktown, from the Hornet went in the wrong direction, and then the Hornet torpedo bombers. There's actually a bigger story there. But in order to get this immense story into a two-hour time frame, I can see the director saying, we can't do that. What they do show is absolutely accurate. But there's a lot that they don't show that adds context and nuance to what does happen. That makes sense. Now, in the movie, the way that they show the result of this, as you mentioned earlier, we see Dick Best dropping a bomb and their carriers set ablaze. But then Yamamoto decides to withdraw from Midway eventually. He says, not going to gamble any further loss. One of the carriers, I believe it's Yamaguchi and Nagumo, decide to stay on board, but the rest of the ship is abandoned crew, and and they're going to go down with the ship. They're going to scuttle the ship so it doesn't fall into American hands. At the end, the movie shows four Japanese carriers sunk, and 
even though Americans lost a lot of pilots and planes, none of the American carriers were lost in the movie. Is that the end result of the Battle of Midway? Not quite. The last of the Japanese ships, the Hiryu, the fourth of them, that launched the attacks, two attacks against the Yorktown, is the last one to be sunk. It is true that Yamaguchi goes down with his ship along with his chief of staff they decided they would admire the moon together uh, people at the time remembered them saying that and that's in the movie it's it's absolutely accurate it's not unusual not only in the imperial japanese navy but in other navies for captains to believe if they have failed in their mission that's their duty to go down to their ship that's less true among americans who are more pragmatic about those things no i'm going to go get another ship and come back but, but that was not unusual, and it certainly happened there. It is not true that the Americans did not lose a carrier. Um, the Yorktown, the planes of which sunk the Soryu in that morning attack, uh, was the recipient of two vicious counterattacks by the Japanese, both of them from the Hiryu, one from dive bombers, one from torpedo planes. She was hit by several bombs, several torpedoes. The captain had to order abandoned ship and then went back aboard to try to salvage her and bring her back. She was being towed slowly, about three knots, back toward Pearl Harbor when a Japanese submarine put two more torpedoes into her. So the poor Yorktown was just beat to pieces and did sink early on the morning of June 7th. Uh, So the Japanese did sink an American carrier, um, the Yorktown. It's kind of interesting, too, because... They believed they had sunk the Yorktown in the Coral Sea. You know, their official reports that went back said, not only did we sink the Lexington, we also sank the Yorktown. Well, wait a minute, here's the Yorktown again at Pearl Harbor. And the first group that came out, the bombers said, well, we sunk the Yorktown. And then the torpedo planes came out and found this big carrier, which they thought was a different one. And they sunk the Yorktown. And then the Japanese submarine came in and it sunk the Yorktown. So that poor ship, was sunk at least four times, according to the Japanese records. And the bottom line to that is that one of the new carriers being built back in the United States that had been designated to be the Bonhomme Richard, named in honor of John Paul Jones' ship, was rechristened the Yorktown. So not only did the Yorktown CV-5 seem to have multiple lives, but from the Japanese point of view, here comes another Yorktown, this one CV-10, to fight again in the war. And that ship, by the way, still floats and is a museum ship in Charleston Harbor and can be visited today. I imagine that had to have an effect on Japanese morale to be like sinking the same ship over and over and over. I mean, that's it's like it won't go down. Yeah, it's like a hydra headed monster that you cut off its head and another one grows in its place. One thing I want to ask you about throughout the movie, we see a lot of aerial warfare. There's the torpedo bombers, dive bombers, just dogfights in the skies between American and Japanese fighters. How well do you think the movie did overall depicting the Navy pilots and their aerial combat strategies? I think the movie does a wonderful job using computer technology to demonstrate how that worked. I I have heard people say that the star of the movie is not any of the characters. The star of the movie is the computer-generated images, and and I think that's probably a fair statement. I think they did a a superb job. There are four kinds of airplanes on each carrier. This is for the Japanese and the Americans as well. There are the dive bombers, who usually carry larger bombs, for the Americans' case, the 1,000-pound bombs. Then there are the so-called scout bombers, often the same airplane, the Dauntless, 
but carrying 500-pound bombs or two 100-pound bombs or both. Then there are the torpedo planes, in this case, the so-called devastator, low, slow, sluggish, drives like a truck, that carried very heavy torpedo. The sad thing about that, of course, is the American torpedoes simply did not work. They certainly did not work well. None of them worked at Midway. And then the fourth category are the fighter planes, in this case, the Wildcat F4, F6, and F4, F4 Wildcat uh, that were designed to protect the bombers and the torpedo planes, as well as the task force. And I think without getting into a lot of technical detail, the producers did a really nice job of letting the audience see these different kinds of aircraft and how they worked. I noticed that some of the images uh, from under the planes showed the uh, Dauntless dive bombers with the wheels tucked up into the little wheel well. I mean, the depictions are absolutely wonderful. You mentioned that the tide of the war in the Pacific changed in five minutes. And the movie does mention briefly, I think it's actually in the American side, they talk about, or maybe it was on the Japanese side, they talk about potentially why the Japanese picked Midway as a target. The idea being that Midway would then allow them to launch from there to attack Hawaii and then eventually the West Coast of the United States. And then because the movie doesn't show much aftermath of you know the Battle of Midway, it doesn't continue on through the rest of the war, but it does imply that it was a turning point for the war. So the idea that I got there was perhaps it was a turning point for the war because we were able to stop the Japanese from advancing and potentially launching attacks on the west coast of the U.S. mainland. Was that why it was such a turning point, or was there a different strategical reason why the Battle of Midway was such a turning point for the war in the Pacific? No, that's not it, really. The Japanese really had no intention of invading the United States' west coast. Uh, I mean, uh, there was some talk uh, about would it be possible to put a bomb on one of the locks in the Panama Canal to make it difficult for America to transfer forces from the Atlantic to the Pacific? But by and large, the Japanese grand strategy was to knock the United States fleet off its pedestal, take out the battleship fleet, which they did on December 7th, sink the carriers, which they were trying to do at Midway, and then consolidate their conquests in the Western Pacific, create a defensive barrier, and let the Americans beat themselves up trying to take it back. There was never a plan for the United States to invade California, march to the Rocky Mountain, none of that stuff. They did not ever believe they could defeat the United States overall. What they believed they could do was wear out the will of the feckless Americans to fight a long war in the Pacific, trying to take back what the Japanese conquered in that first six months. It was a resource war for what was available in the Dutch East Indies, and the Americans would try to interfere. And the Japanese thought was that at some point the Americans would say, oh, we're not getting anywhere here. Let's talk. And in the negotiations that followed, the Japanese would use certain things they'd captured as bargaining chips. Well, we'll give you back Guam and Wake and Midway as bargaining chips in exchange for your recognition of our conquest of the Dutch East Indies. I think that was the kind of thing they had in mind. Midway had two purposes for them. One was to lure out the American carriers. The second was to conquer it and hold it as a bargaining chip for subsequent negotiation. It was not a stepping stone to the conquest 
even of Hawaii, much less of California or anything beyond. Yeah, that's a little different than what I got from watching the movie. But I guess it makes sense that they couldn't show all of that on top of what they were already showing in just a couple hours. Right. Is there anything that you wish was in the movie that they left out? Well, as I say, they, there's simply not room for a lot of the things that I found most interesting about the Battle of Midway. They do nothing with the fighter squadrons. Uh, Jimmy Thatch, who invented a, a, what he called a defensive beam maneuver, but always known as the Thatch Weave, for fighting against Japanese Zeros, he was a player. And, and I think his story would be almost as interesting as Dick Best's. The Flight to Nowhere, as it's famously known, where the uh, strike force from the USS Hornet that played no role in the morning attack just flew off in the wrong direction entirely. The whole story behind that is an interesting story. But here's the thing. If I had been tasked with picking the main characters that I wanted to carry this story, I think, well, let's see, who would I have? I'd have Nimitz, because Nimitz makes the decision to accept the Japanese challenge. He's going to defend Midway because he's got this intelligence advantage. I picked Leighton because Leighton brought Rochefort's information to Nimitz so he could make that decision. I'd pick Wade McCluskey because he's the one who sees that destroyer and flies north and finds the Kido Butai. And I'd pick Dick Best. And by golly, that's what they did. Now, those four guys carry the story. There are a lot of other players here that could be talked about. And, and their stories are absolutely fascinating. But it would be a 50-hour movie. And nobody's going to go see a 50-hour movie. I thought, by and large, the decisions they made to use these four as their vehicles for explaining what happens makes a lot of sense. I thought their technology displayed beautifully the way a lot of that stuff worked. And I think, by and large, there's nothing overtly misleading in the movie. It's not complete, but it's also not wrong. And that's pretty good. Yeah. Well, that leads right into somebody who wants to learn more about the real story. And you do have a fantastic book called The Battle of Midway. Can you share some information about your book and where someone listening can pick up a copy? Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, sure. It should be just about any bookstores everywhere, as they say. Uh, Barnes & Noble still has it on the shelves. Of course, Amazon sells it at a discount if you buy your books through Amazon. I think there's a few hardback editions still available, but mainly it's selling in paperback now. There is an audiobook version which uh, is available. And, and if you're really keen on such things, it's available in Chinese, Polish, German, and some other languages too. So yeah, it, it's pretty much available anywhere, I think. Uh, I remember when I wrote this book, I was a little nervous about doing it because there are other good books on Midway as well. Walter Lord wrote a wonderful book. And of course, John Parshall and Anthony Tully wrote one from the Japanese point of view called Shattered Sword that's very good. And Gordon Prang wrote a book called Miracle at Midway. And I was nervous stepping onto this hallowed ground because so many others had preceded me. But I think I did make a contribution uh, and told the story fairly well. I, I strongly suspect the... Uh, People who wrote the screenplay leaned heavily on it because there are some similarities. But of course, it goes much deeper and much further than is possible in the movie. Thank you so much for coming on to chat about the historical accuracy of Midway. You're very welcome. I enjoyed it. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. 
I'd like to thank Craig Simons one more time for his time and expertise in helping us separate fact from fiction in the movie Midway. Now, as soon as you're done listening to this, go grab a copy of Craig's book called The Battle of Midway to dive even deeper into the true story of the battle. In my case, I got the audiobook version, and it's great. I mean, it's almost 15 hours long. So, of course, it's got so many more details about the battle that we could never hope to cover on this episode. And of course, if you're driving or unable to head there right now, I'll make sure to add a link to Craig's book in both physical form as well as the audiobook version in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web based on a true story podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one. The U.S. was outnumbered with only 21 ships against Japan's 162 ships at the Battle of Midway. Number two, Japan's surprise attack on Pearl Harbor was driven by their need for oil. Number three, the Battle of the Coral Sea was the first time in naval history where opposing ships never visually sighted each other. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's count it down and start with number three. The Battle of the Coral Sea was the first time in naval history where opposing ships never visually sighted each other. That is true. As Craig mentioned, the Battle of the Coral Sea took place between planes that took off from American and Japanese carrier forces that weren't within visual range of each other, so the ships never saw each other. Next is number two. Japan's surprise attack on Pearl Harbor was driven by their need for oil. That is also true. Craig explained that the Japanese got most of their oil from the United States. With their war in China drawing a lot of that, they didn't like being dependent on anyone else for their resources. So oil was a huge driver behind the attack on Pearl Harbor. I I don't mean to say that the oil supply was on Hawaii. That really wasn't. It was in the Dutch East Indies. But they were no longer controlled by the Dutch government. Today, it's the Netherlands, but the Netherlands weren't formally recognized until 1949 in the wake of the Japanese dismantling much of the Dutch economy. So basically, Germany invaded what we now call the Netherlands today. They invaded them in 1940. That left the colony of the Dutch East Indies rather exposed. So the Japanese wanted to take control in the Dutch East Indies for the oil supply there. But the U.S.-controlled Philippines were right in between. They were in the lines of communication between the Dutch East Indies and the Japanese homeland. So between that and the U.S. supplying the Japanese with oil, that meant any way you look at it, the U.S. would have a lot of pull over the Japanese that they wanted to break free from. And that's why they attacked Pearl in hopes that they could take out the American carriers and effectively stop the United States from being able to interfere with their conquest of the Dutch East Indies. That means... The lie is number three. The U.S. was outnumbered with only 21 ships against Japan's 162 ships at the Battle of Midway. Well, right away, I lied about the number. I said 21 ships for the U.S., and as Craig explained, the U.S. had 24 ships, not 21. It was actually the Japanese who had 21 ships in the Kido Butai, the direct task force that was involved in the Battle of Midway. I also lied about the overall number of Japanese ships. That number is not 162, but 159. That's the total number of ships the Japanese had at sea in the first week of June 1942. 
But as Craig told us, most of those were involved in other operations. So for the Battle of Midway, it was 24 U.S. ships against 21 Japanese ships. Four carriers on the Japanese side, three on the U.S. side, but along with the airstrips on the island of Midway, that gave the U.S. another place for planes to take off. So overall, it was pretty even as far as the numbers were concerned. That just about wraps up our time today. But before we go, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. I know that's not something that most podcasts do, and that's exactly why I'm sharing this sort of information. If there's one thing that is surprising to most people who are new to podcasting or have never created a podcast before, it's just how much time goes into creating them. So I figure maybe if you find out more about how much time and money goes into creating podcasts like mine, maybe you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to for free just a little bit more. With that said, today's episode took a total of 23 hours to create and cost $46.38 in out-of-pocket expenses. Now, as I always do, I want to make it clear that time and cost is only my time for this one episode. So that does not include the countless hours of my guest time researching the subject matter we talked about, nor does it include my ongoing costs. For example, the monthly podcast hosting and website hosting costs. Those are two separate costs that are not in that $46.38. It also does not account for any of the time outside of the writing, researching, and producing this one episode. For an example there, I recently had to replace my computer desk because it broke, and so I had to buy a new one. That also meant unhooking everything, rehooking everything back up. That all takes time. And of course, the cost of the replacement parts and all of those extra things that really it just cost time and money, but none of that is accounted for in the 23 hours to create this episode and the $46.38 that I mentioned before. Now, if you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll consider helping to support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. And as a bonus, you'll get access to hours of exclusive content on the producer's feed. Right now, there are 47 minisodes covering different fictional movies and the way they use real history or events to make them seem a little more realistic. For example, in the last minisode, we learned about some of the real animals and locations that we saw in the movie Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle. There are hours and hours of bonus content available immediately and plenty more planned and in the works just as a way of saying thank you for helping me keep the lights on here at Base on a True Story. Once again, you can find out how to support the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. In the meantime, if you'd like to add to our story today, hop on to the Base on a True Story Facebook group, or you can reach out to me directly on Twitter where I'm at Dan Lefebvre, D-A-N-L-E-F-E-B. And if social media isn't your thing, you can shoot me a good old-fashioned email at dan at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.